0: Listener supported. WNYC Studios.
1: Hey everyone, it's Anna. And this is... The Audio We Love Festival. Every week in the Death, Sex, and Money newsletter, we share some of our favorite podcast episodes with you in a section we call Audio We Love. It's really fun for us to listen to the great pieces our friends are making across the audio world and then tell you about them. And recently, we started thinking, what if we shared some of these incredible listens in our podcast feed for a whole week? Because right now, we could all use something special to listen to that's not the news. So that's what we are doing this week in the first ever Death, Sex, and Money Audio We Love Fest. And I want to jump ahead to let you know that this Friday, at the end of the festival, we have a very special live event coming up. I'll be joined by the co-hosts of the Back Issue podcast, Tracy Clayton and Josh Gwynn, on Zoom at 7 p.m. Eastern to talk about their new show, which definitely falls into the audio we love category. And they're also going to tell me about some of the pop culture moments from the past that are helping them get through this year. Mark your calendars and RSVP to have the watch link sent directly to you. Go to thegreenspace.org. That's green with an E. And to get audio we love all year round, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter if you are not already subscribed. Head over to debtsexmoney.org slash newsletter and we'll get you on the list. Today, we're kicking off this festival by sharing the first episode of a brand new series called Goodbye to All This. It's from the BBC World Service, and it's hosted and written by Australian audio producer Sophie Townsend. It's about family, love, and grieving her husband's death. We're going to play you the full episode, and then stick around after the break, and I'll talk to Sophie a bit more.
0: There's a group of us, mums of kids at the local school, who sit on a Friday morning and have coffee together. We meet at the cafe around the corner from my house in Glebe, a suburb near the city in Sydney, Australia. Usually, we're laughing at the expense of someone's husband. We must look horribly cliched like this, after-school drop-off, complaining about men in our lives, the ones we chose to be with forever, the fathers of our children. It's just that with raising kids and paying bills sometimes, the person you do that with day after day is hard to like. And here in the coffee shop, with these women, it feels safe. Because we know each other so well. And we all have the same stories. And we feel the same frustrations and the same exhaustion. And the same small triumphs too. So we lay it all out for each other. And we laugh. And it feels like it will always be like this. That our lives will go on in this safe little place we've made, where things are sometimes hard and tiring, but really very good. We never expect anything really bad will happen. Not to us. I'm Sophie Townsend. With Goodbye to All This, an original podcast from the BBC World Service. It's about losing the man I loved, and going on without him. It's about raising two girls through grief, and being alone, and surviving, mostly intact. Chapter One shadow. Most of the week is a rush to get the girls dressed, through the school gates, and get myself to work on time. But Fridays, Fridays are mine and I don't have to be anywhere after school drop-off. There are no meetings and no deadlines on a Friday, and I can walk slowly back from school, going the long way to see my favourite eucalyptus tree. Thinking of nothing but the household chores I'll catch up with, a visit to my parents, maybe some writing I'll do. Fridays are a lovely long breath out.
2: It was a very local time, yeah, with kids in preschool and primary school. It was all about them and we all lived locally. We had kids at the local school and life was kind of similar for all of us.
0: I always thought of Nicola as a founding member of the Coffee Mums. I don't think she was really. She was just there before me. There's always been mums at the coffee shop, groups of women talking, laughing, getting through it together.
2: It, it kept me sane and it kept me in touch with the fact that what I was going through was similar to what other women were going through with all you know, the things that we thought were tragedies or traumas that our kids were going through or our, we were going through it did give it some perspective that it wasn't so traumatic because it was
0: normal. Coffee mornings, walks around the park, a night down the pub. It keeps us sane. Sane Sane-ish.
2: Sitting in cafes regularly with people you know, I think you do peel away the layers. I think some people peeled away more layers and felt comfortable. I think I remember days, you know, various people taking their turns to cry about what might be going on.
0: No-one minds the tears, but someone, often the person crying, will always make a joke. An equilibrium is restored. After all, we are the lucky ones. With all the stresses of raising children, we're basically all right. I tell them about Russell. Oh, what's he, doing? he says he's exhausted, I say, in a way that makes it clear I have no sympathy for it at all. I'm sick of hearing about it. I mean, who do we know who's not tired? He isn't wildly happy at work, I know that, and there's never enough time to get everything done on the weekend. So things are rushed, but so often we're rubbing up against each other the wrong way. We're short with each other, not considerate or kind, because there isn't the time.
2: I remember something along the lines of, he's complaining about being tired, he doesn't know what tired is, sort of. Yes, so I do remember saying, and I still say and I've been tired for 20 years since I had my first child, and so when Patrick comes home complaining about being tired, (laughs) I'm not that interested.
0: She's right. No one's weariness ever manages to be as interesting as your own. And the exhaustion of someone you live with, someone you're depending on to help you get through all the colds and the stomach bugs and the children's temper tantrums, is not only not interesting, it's infuriating. I'm not going to indulge him. I'm too busy. And maybe, just maybe, I like believing that things are all right because things always have been. Not perfect, but all right. And I'm tired too. He goes to the doctors, gets some blood tests done. At the coffee morning, I make fun of that too. Bear and I are off on holidays. Bear, our first child. She's ten, going on twenty-five. She's clever and sophisticated, and not quite a little girl anymore. She's been Bear since she was first born. Baby Bear, then Big Bear when her sister arrived two years later. And then just Bear. Our Bear, still, sort of. She's been desperate to go to Tokyo ever since she started watching Japanese cartoons. I want to spend time with her and I'd go anywhere. I can see puberty on the horizon and the attraction of spending time alone with her mother, waning. I kiss our younger daughter, who we always call Poppy, like the flower. Bright and open and delicate all at once. I'm full of quick and superficial reassurances of the lovely week she'll have with Daddy. She adores her father in that openly physical way eight-year-olds still can. But she's aware, at the airport, even as she holds his hand tight, that her sister is getting the better deal here. That she's being left behind. I kiss him, remind him about the dentist appointment she has this week. Just before we go through the doors, I turn to wave. Poppy waves. He blows a kiss and now I see it. There's exhaustion in his eyes and in the way he stands. How didn't I notice it before? My heart gives that anxious little flip that is usually set off by one of the kids. And Bear tugs on my hand and we go through the doors and I swallow the anxiety. He's just tired. We get lost in a seven-floor stationery store. We eat noodle soup out of a vending machine. We walk the streets buying presents of Hello Kitty socks for her friends. We finally get brave about crossing at Shibuya Station, which our guidebooks tell us is the world's busiest crossing. And we like the noise her children's subway ticket makes as she goes through the turnstiles. And then we come home at night to our tiny hotel room and Bear watches a television program about a small talking dog, which we don't understand, but that she declares the finest television ever made. And then Russell calls one night, and I can hear Poppy in the background, yelling out to the dog, and Russell trying to keep his voice down. He talks the way you do when you've been reading medical reports, like suddenly you know what's what, but in actual fact are as in the dark as ever. He says the tests indicate an iron deficiency, which is unusual in men, and could indicate internal bleeding, which may indicate a tumour. But, he says, that's the worst case. It's probably not that. It's probably nothing. More news the next night. The doctor has sent him off for more tests. They show a protein in his blood, which could be an indicator of bowel cancer but the doctor thinks it can't be right. Russell is scrupulous about screening. His mother had died of bowel cancer, but that marker, well, it means something's up. I'm sure it's nothing, he says. And again we're out of sync, this time me feeling scared and wanting him to take this seriously and him wanting it to blow over. I sit one morning on the subway, and I think about the call, and I cry quietly, hoping no one will see you. Bear notices and asks me what's wrong, missing your dad and your sister, that's all. I think she knows that it isn't all. She gives me the smallest of pats on my shoulder, in that tentative way a child comforts their mother, not wanting to make it worse, not knowing what it is. She teases me for being homesick, hugs me, and busies herself counting the subway stops. I don't think I sleep the whole night through the rest of the time we're in Tokyo. And the day after we're home, he has another test, this one to rule bowel cancer out. And it turns out that the bowel is healthy and fine, and there's nothing to worry about. And his specialist says that quite possibly, Russell's exhaustion, his low iron, this protein marker in his blood, which after all is sometimes not a marker of cancer, are just anomalies. Relief. It's okay. And the night after the bowel cancer scan, we make dinner together and he looks lighter somehow. The girls do their homework and he and I move in the way only people who know each other and love each other can in a rhythm only achieved out of long-established patterns of padding around one another. He makes me laugh, a wry comment, delivered deadpan. We talk politics and work gossip. He lectures me on a bit of arcane rock and roll history. And he laughs when I make fun of him. It's an evening full of those moments never spoken of in the coffee shop. A kiss. A shared joke. Watching the way he twirls noodles round his fork. The way he folds his arms over his chest and sits back after dinner. The way he pours wine into my glass. The way he loves me. After dinner we put the girls to bed and watch TV. I lie with my head in his lap. Here is my husband, who'd been all alone in the world when I met him, an only child and his parents long dead, a determined bachelor, self-sufficient and seemingly fine just the way he was. And somehow I'd managed to get through all that. We're watching an American cop show we only realise halfway through we've already seen. Poppy comes downstairs and tries to argue her case for being allowed to stay up. He takes her back to her room. He'd always been very clear he hadn't wanted children, but had them because he loved me. And the family we've made is everything to him, and I am everything to him, and he to me, even through those times we forget it. We watch the late-night news, switch off the lights, and go to bed. We sleep deeply, only woken by Poppy, who comes in earlier than we'd like, to chat. We have breakfast and get the girls ready for school. Russell kisses us goodbye. His doctor has ordered a full body scan, just to be sure. And he's going, but just to be certain. And I have coffee with the school mums. Then my mobile rings and I go outside to take the call. And I tell them what he tells me. A shadow on his lung. The tiredness, the protein marker in his blood. And now a shadow on his lung.
2: So I can't remember even what he was low in. But, um, but yes, then I do remember you coming back to the cafe.
0: And you cried and I look these women in the eyes and I can see it all sympathy fear there but for the grace of God and this look that says we will do anything you need anything turns out I'd need everything
1: That's Sophie Townsend and the first episode of her new show, Goodbye to All This, from the BBC World Service. After the break, I talk with Sophie about how she got some inspiration for the series from an unlikely source, the letters of Queen Victoria. Welcome back to Deaf, Sex, and Money from WNYC. I'm Anna Sale, and I'm here now with Sophie Townsend, the creator of the new BBC World Service podcast, Goodbye to All This. Hi, Sophie. Hi, Anna. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for sharing this series with us. It's beautiful. Oh, thank you
0: so much. It's um, uh, been a real privilege to make, and um, I'm really So thrilled to share it with the world, and particularly your audience.
1: All this week, we are hosting a festival we're calling the Audio We Love Festival. Um, And as part of that, we've been asking the creators of the shows that we're featuring about the things that really got their creative juices flowing while they were making these podcasts that we're listening to. Whether it's a meal you really like cooking, or music you were listening to, or movies you were watching— I'm curious to hear when you were beginning the project of making such a deeply personal and deeply felt podcast series, um, when you were looking for inspiration, what did you turn to?
0: Uh, I think firstly, I, um, I turned, <laughs> I turned to, um, Queen Victoria. Ah. Yeah. Um, and, uh. I, I want to say I'm not um, a fan of the royal family um, and I'm not, I'm not a monarchist um, and I'm, I'm also not a fan of Queen Victoria as a, um, you know, ruler of an empire, but she was a widow, a, a kind of she was the widow really um, and so she was married to Prince Albert and he died um, in 1861 after a marriage where nine children were born and a very loving marriage and she was a widow at at, um, about 40 which was the same age as I was and she she beat her breast you know she was really she wore mourning for 40 years until her death Um, so she was in black um, for the rest of her life and Um, things in England really stopped, which meant an empire stopped for many years while she mourned. And she was just so... Her letters are just so melodram... I I think we sort of term them melodramatic now. Deeply felt, Mm. but sort of, um, you know, there's no restraint in her mourning. And I guess... I never want to be Queen Victoria and there's not much likelihood of me, you know, having that life. But (laughs) that sort of um, kind of obsession she had with Albert and with the grief of Albert, um, that sort of gave me, I think, in a weird way, permission to examine my story and look back and think uh, this was a huge thing and a traumatic thing and grieving is okay and um, documenting that grieving is also okay. I think we feel a bit in our modern lives that we should get on with things and we should, you know, there's a time period which is sort of um, like it's okay to mourn for, you know, a certain amount of time and then everybody starts saying, you know, when are you going to find someone else or, um, you know, uh, just there are indications that you need to stop um, thinking about this and it just, I don't know, I just felt real sort of, like, this is okay to actually love someone and miss someone and adore someone and want to talk about um, those years after he died.
1: Hmm. Did you find, after spending, you know, several hours in her letters and in noticing the ways that you could relate to her, sorrow, um, did you find... What would you do when you wanted to sort of re-enter daily routine?
0: Well, I I mean, that was really important because one of the things Victoria... I realised about Victoria was she was stuck, right? Because no one could say, you know, you've got to get on with things or, you know, like she could basically just kind of wallow in her grief um and I I you know I think wallowing is is good sometimes but I have the good fortune um of actually having to do those tasks that um may seem uh dull and time-consuming and um kind of you know that take me away from my creative work and I think um a big thing for me has been cooking and cooking those recipes that um take time and that I know like I love my favorite thing to cook is roast chicken Mm -hmm. um and I I brine the chicken 12 hours before it goes into the oven and I prepare the brine and um, put the chicken in the brine and stir it and um, then it goes 12 hours later into the oven and, you know, you've got to get the temperatures right and you've got to turn the chicken at the right time and the potatoes have to be just, just so around the chicken and... I don't do it often and it's become less satisfactory since my eldest has become a vegetarian. So (laughs) it kind of, that leaves you with a lot of roast chicken. (laughs) Um, But there's something in those uh, recipes that my mother cooked, my, you know, my grandmother cooked, um, that sort of slow... Just calm cooking really centers me back into the world.
1: And I'm curious that you had to reach back. It's interesting to me that you reached back to the 19th century for a model for for grief. Um, was there anything, whether it's art or music or books, um, about death and dying and grief... Um, that's more contemporary that you found um, inspiring,
0: yeah, there's something about those nineteenth century rituals that I think are very um, they're so, they're so full of emotion and symbolism. And I think, we really lost that um in the first part of the twentieth century. We decided, and I think it was probably the first world war with so many uh, young men dying. Um people just didn't want to didn't want to make a fuss in the way they had, and those sort of nineteenth century rituals. and I'm very pleased in many ways <laughs> that we don't have those rituals because um, I would not want to wear um, black crepe for, you know, a certain number of years. Um, and I think we're much freer, but we've lost, I think we lost something. I think we're not so familiar with death. It's taken, it's been you know, really taken away. But I guess, you know, my rituals are really about um, walking in nature and noticing nature and the wildflowers are so magnificent this year. And I think that's been really important for me just to kind of create my own kind of ways of thinking about him and about the work and also um, I guess freeing myself from that too sort of thinking I am just a bunch of elements that have come together in this sort of random way that makes me who I am and you know I'm about as important as a as a you know, beautiful wildflower. You know, that's that feeling the breeze on my body and smelling those natural smells and being in the world has really helped me sort of move away from my head mm-hmm. and get back to just feeling it, just feeling all those things again. And um, that was really important too.
1: Mm. It's striking to me that you're describing both like feeling inspired by Queen Victoria and her expressions of the immensity of her grief and also how that it's been soothing to realize how common your grief is, and also your very life, like to compare yourself to a, to a wildflower. I like that, just the bigness and the smallness holding both of those things.
0: Yeah, because I kind of think that's, that's really what grief is. It's all those big, powerful, rolling emotions and the, you know, tiny... I mean, there are things about Russell that I remember and they're like, you know, the way he rolled his eyes after a joke or the way he um, finished a sandwich or, you know, the, the mm. tiny gestures that, um, and that's, yeah, remembering that, that sort of lightness can really, I think, help you through And it's really helped me
1: through. Sophie Townsend, thank you so much for sharing with us this audio that you've made and and for talking with me about this. Thank you so much, Emma. Thanks. You can subscribe to Sophie's brand new podcast from the BBC World Service called Goodbye to All This wherever you listen. Their show is produced by Sophie Townsend and Eleanor McDowell. Original music by Jeremy Walmsley. Alan Hall is the executive producer. The consultant story editor from CBC Podcasts is Chris Oak. The BBC World Service podcast editor is John Manel. Thanks also to Chris Chafin. The show is a Falling Tree production. Death, Sex, and Money is a listener supported production of WNYC Studios in New York. Annabelle Bacon is producing our Audio We Love Festival. The rest of our team includes Katie Bishop, Afi Yellow Duke, Emily Boutine, and Andrew Dunn. Thanks to Michelle Shu for her work on the festival. The Reverend John Delore and Steve Lewis wrote our theme music. I'm on Twitter at Anna Sale. The show is at Death Sex Money on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And if you want to keep getting audio recommendations from us even after this festival is over, sign up for our newsletter. Text DSM News two words to seven zero one zero one. Look out for more audio we love in your podcast feed tomorrow. Dear God. Sorry, I forgot about you. And thank you for the tingles that I received in my body this morning.
0: That was nice.
1: I'm Anna Sale, and this is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC.